You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Katie Kwan. She is a dancer and choreographer whose work heavily intersects with technology and robotics. She's currently in a mechanical engineering PhD program at Stanford, and you can check out her work at katiequan.com, C-A-T-I-E-C-U-A-N. Katie and I met years ago through some Juilliard friends, including her long-term partner, Cameron, who was a few years after me in the drama division. They were based in New York for many years and then recently relocated to the West Coast for her to go back to school. I've wanted to interview her for a long time because I find it so inspiring the way that she's applying her artistry in unexpected ways and carving her own path. I hope you enjoy the 142nd episode of The Compass. needs a definition because I think there's there's a dark side and then there's like a suboptimal side <laughs> which maybe those those two are a little bit different. For me I associate the dark side with no flow and being constrained, having no freedom and independence whether that is self-imposed or it's the boundaries that have been put in place around me, that's what I associate with the dark side. So I think of the dark side as a place of no flow, constraint, lack of freedom, and I try not to go there ever. (laughs) And I I think what makes that happen or what causes darkness in my practice is if I'm feeling so overwhelmed or overworked that I have to narrow the scope of what I'm thinking about or like narrow my own activities and I start to feel like I'm under this immense weight and that's when I feel a lack of freedom and independence what do I try to do not to go there um So the opposite of constraint and weight is movement. And so if I'm dancing or I'm forcing myself to dance, whether it's in improv class or my living room or ballet or rehearsal, um, the 
I could never be in the dark side. So I think something that I try to remember and internalize is if I'm feeling like I might be going to the dark side, the number one antidote to that is to move, to dance and do what I love. And mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's a resource that is, it never expires. That feeling of gratification and freedom and independence that I get from dancing it hasn't become less, even as I've gotten older or danced in new places. It's never gone away. That's wonderful. And it's something you have, I mean, it's, it's your own body. It's something that you have with you at all times. Do you right. ever, do you ever it's, feel like yeah. you get to a place where you can't tap into that, where you're just feeling so lethargic or so burdened that it's really hard to start moving? even though you know it's going to help you? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think certainly, like, when when I have to start over in a new community, like, moving out to California after such a long time in New York City, you're feeling like, where can I move or where can I dance that is safe or that will welcome me? And so that can be a bit of a obstacle into that movement place even when I know it's going to help it's like well who's going to be there and what are the politics around that dance class or Mm. does it have any outcome is it going to be a class that I like what will the other dancers be like and and even starting with something small like I'm just going to show up for myself and dance in the morning for five minutes maybe is sometimes enough to realize that it's worth it Um, and I don't need to feel intimidated maybe or like I can't dance or that that is so blocked that it's unavailable to me right so after after getting moving is there anything else that you that you pull out when you're feeling like especially I I was interested in what you said about like when you feel like you have to narrow the scope of your activities or of your goals because there's just too much on your plate what do you do in those kinds of situations yeah I think like our attention and our time is the most valuable thing that we can have right now in, in 2019. We, there are so many things that compete for our attention, whether it's our cell phone or you know, the e- emails we haven't responded to or the people we haven't spoken with, the opportunities that we aren't pursuing. It's like there's so much that's competing for your attention kind of around the clock that when, when I can't distribute that, when I can't take it fully and like expand it as far as I want to it's that's what that narrowing is that I'm referring to it's like okay now I need to only pick one thing which is scary because you wonder I mean Aziz Ansari has this great bit that he does where he says I wanted to go out for tacos with my friend and once we decided we were going for tacos it was like I had to look up the hundred best taco places in New York and cross-reference which ones were (laughs) within me and my friend of a certain distance and would take credit card and we're under $20. And it's like this constant awareness of what you're not doing, um, such that you have to focus your attention so closely. And I think, you know, it's, it's a necessary evil at times. You have to be able to get your work done. If you have a project, you need to be able to finish it. But I feel so constrained and overwhelmed if it's like, I can't also be looking at the full range of what's possible. Um, so it's that, that back and forth. It's definitely a, a flexion and extension <laughs> that I feel when it comes to like abrupt and narrowing of my focus. 
Um, so you are in grad school right now. Can you tell me a little bit, just so the listeners know, like what you're studying? I'm in, I'm just about to start the second year of my PhD at Stanford. And oh, my you're going all the way to your PhD? I didn't even know that. That's great. Yes. So my department is mechanical engineering. Mm-hmm. And... I spend a lot of time like straddling some <laughs> some different aspects of mechanical engineering, whether it's dance or robotics or design, and I take classes sort of all throughout the campus. So I take technique classes in theater arts and performance studies, as well as kind of like theoretical um, models about movement and trying to really expand like the communities that I'm a part of on campus because only doing engineering is tough for me, again, <laughs> the narrowing narrowing of the focus. Um, so I started, I will start my second year in September, and that was after living in New York for six and a half years, where I was mostly a dancer and choreographer, but working with technology in my pieces and my live performances and installation works. So this feels... Being in grad school feels very much like an extension of my previous research, but now I'm a part of a gigantic institution, which also has expectations about what that research should look like. So Mm. it has been a new chapter for me. Yeah, academia has its own rules in a way. I feel like they have a different language that you have to learn about, yeah, how they want things communicated. Right, and what quote-unquote output is, which is Mm. one of my favorite words. When you're a dancer, for example, an output could be a performance piece, it could be a methodology or a way of structuring improvisation, it could be new techniques that you're developing about how to move or think or talk about moving, it could be a new class that you're teaching, right? On the academic side, output is completely different. It's things like publications, journals, conference papers, like peer-reviewed bits of writing, experiments, experimental structures, the results from those experiments, the software that you use to make them, any innovations that come with the designs about machines that you're creating. And so it's the actual form is completely different. And making that form palatable or legible to the audience in question is a huge major shift in my mindset and also in how I spend my time, really. Well, I have so many questions about that, but I'm wondering, <laughs> I, I feel like I want to go back first just to like get a, a picture yeah. about where you come from and how you wound up where you are now. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Berkeley, California. And did you start dancing at a very young age? I did, for sure. I started dancing, I think, when I was three. My dad is Cuban, so there's a joke in our family that if you don't know how to dance, you're not really Cuban, (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) which may or may not be true. Um, So certainly socially, you know, when you grow up with that family that's always moving at parties, but I took technique class from a really young age, but even in maybe elementary and middle school, sort of convinced myself I could never have a career as a professional artist. I had 
two very competing interests. One was the fact that I loved to be a great student and I felt like there was this external representation that you don't get to do everything you want. It's like you're either a dancer yeah. or you're a student, which turned out not to be true at all, but <laughs> some of the most brilliant people I know are dancers and artists. And so it's just that you, for whatever reason, I was associating through movies and society that you can't be a great student and also be a great dancer. It's amazing uh-huh. how we pick up on those things at such a young age, those like stereotypes. Oh, completely. And for I'm trying to imagine, like, what are the films that really did that to me? (laughs) I mean, some of, even, like, Center Stage, where they move away at a young age, and she's deciding between going to college or being a professional dancer, as if the two could never happen at a point in tandem. Um, But I, I grew up dancing for most of my life, and then also played volleyball and did track and field, kind of loved to be super athletic and went to school in the Bay Area, went to UC Berkeley, I did my undergrad in econ and dance, so not engineering, which I have since been reminded of many times. <laughs> <laughs> but you did end up, you did end up at least double majoring in dance. So I didn't actually major in dance, it was my minor. Um, okay. But, you know, I took the dance community at UC Berkeley was an incredibly small one, and most of those faculty were, I mean, completely influential in my life, as probably everyone feels when they're uh, going through their first rounds of technique classes. But yeah, I graduated from UC Berkeley, moved to New York City with a pretty hardcore job in consulting. Um, I had spent a couple of summers in my undergrad interning at Google and always had this great interest in kind of consumer technology I grew up in the Silicon Valley in the 90s, which was you know, the huge tech boom. Yeah. So it was very per- pervasive in my community that a lot of young people were interested in careers in tech. What do your parents do? Are they creative? My dad is a cinematographer and a photographer. So oh, okay. a very highly creative person and moved to the U.S. from Cuba after having worked for many years in Cuba and Paris, you know, pursuing his artwork. And my mom worked in finance her whole life, um, most of her professional life, really, and also worked at the university for a time. So they are they are very different in terms of their backgrounds. My stepdad is a lawyer, so I guess my dad is sort of the, the token artist of my upbringing, but my mother's very creative. She plays music, plays the piano, and sings. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think for, for me, at least in my mind, I kind of had this idea from them, too, that because they these immigrant family upbringings, they were really unenthusiastic about the idea of me trying to be a professional artist because that seemed less reliable. Um, and for them, they felt like they'd worked so hard to come from very humble beginnings and get these major professional degrees that oh my gosh, my kid's going to run off to New York and try to do something quirky right. and creative. Right. How will she ever survive? Um, I think that's a major immigrant mentality that they were all grappling with because after I got to the city, I had just come off of a summer at the American Dance Festival. I had some significant mentors in my life like 
uh, Jerry Houlihan, who runs the American Dance Festival, and Hensha Yap, who was a professional dancer for Bill T and a number of other companies, they were sort of telling me, like, if you're going to pursue this as a career, you have to do it now. Right. And you owe yourself the opportunity to try this and see how it goes. Um, so moving to New York, I had these, like, two very competing interests of, well, I want to make my parents really proud and happy and do a great job at this highly desirable consulting gig, but I know that in my heart I want to be creative and dance full-time and at least see if it's possible. Um, and ultimately, that side won. Which <laughs> 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 is probably how we came to be talking right now. Yeah. Um, and I also, one thing that changed about moving to New York was meeting a ton of young artists who were pursuing their craft full-time. My best friend, one of my best friends from high school, Annie Hart, was a cellist at Juilliard. And, you know, but I, through Annie, I met my now many years long partner, Cameron, and Cameron was pursuing his full-time acting career. And then I met people like Dylan, who was pursuing her full-time acting and production career. And... Lilia and Aaron and just this very long yeah. list of people who were making their art their full-time job and getting some visibility about how to do that, you know, where to find auditions and who to create community with and how you rent studios and how you get a booking for a show. Like, all of that was completely foreign to me before I met this you know, coterie of young artists who were making it happen. And I think if I hadn't had that, I probably would have stuck with what my parents wanted from me because in many ways that was more visible. I mean, it's you can't yeah. be what you can't see. That path was more obvious. Mm -hmm. Did you ever, because um, another thing we talk about on the podcast is kind of the, the commerce side of being an artist and how we piece that part of it together. Was there a time in those early days when you had that first consulting gig, which I'm sure had a pretty nice paycheck for someone right out of college, like, did you did you question whether you really wanted to let go of that? Completely, yeah. I mean, we were living, I moved to New York with two roommates and we had a gorgeous apartment in Williamsburg and we're sort of living this like right out of college, swanky New York existence. And then on the weekends, I was dancing at Dance New Amsterdam, which is a studio downtown that actually no longer exists. But I was dancing at Dance New Amsterdam and putting together my first piece, which I showed at the tank. And so I was using all of my free time on my artistic career. And then, of course, it becomes clear that one is kind of bankrolling the other, right? Like I couldn't have rented all the studios space and paid my dancers and everything had I not had this consulting job. Um, and part of me thought that would have been a completely sustainable existence, that dance would be my fun weekend thing, um, and I would just continue to work full-time during the week. But I felt really like there would be some opportunities for me to work full-time later in my life if I was so lucky, and that this opportunity to dance was only going to happen once. Right. So I didn't run the calculus I probably could have <laughs> um, what that would what impact that would have but 
you know, I think the other thing I learned from being around so many young artists was sort of the hustles that you can take on in order to be able to make your artistic career financially viable. And I was really lucky because I came out of college with a set of skills, you know, basically doing digital marketing and web design um, with that set of skills that I could kind of do from anywhere and do part-time and supplement and buy whatever I was doing in my my dance career. So it wound up being this like parallel path. Um, But I think it's such an important topic because sometimes you look to the people who you really admire, whether they're only a few years older than you in the dance world or decades older, and they have what seem to be these completely funded, successful dance companies or dance careers, and you're like, how did that happen for them? Um, And it's a different model for every person, whether they're getting grant support from NGOs or whether they have some family members who are really helping get their company off the ground. You know, it's all, we're not transparent about it enough. Yeah, I know a lot of my dancer friends have recently they, they make it a priority to share their rate information with other dancers, with other freelancers, so that they can watch mm-hmm. each other's backs, you know, so that nobody's like Completely. undercutting, <laughs> lowballing the whole community and lowering the, the pay rate for everybody and that sort of thing. I think it's so right. important, especially since dancers don't necessarily have a union the way that um, actors do, right? Right. So I did wind up joining AGMA, um, which is the American Guild of Musical Artists, because I did a few operas, both in New York and Chicago, and it it was really, you know, you could only take those jobs if you were an AGMA Hmm. dancer, and they provided a lot of benefits and retirement, hourly wages were fixed and negotiated, and those were great jobs to have, and I think made you realize, wow, you know, we as a community need to step up and be giving people these jobs that are respectable in the way that they that are worthy of the work that people are bringing to the table yeah so you you're in New York and you were freelancing with your your side hustles and building building your own dances and all of that were you always incorporating technology into your work as soon as you started choreographing or is that how did that come to combine those two interests yeah it felt for me like I was living in these totally different worlds. I mean, one, <laughs> which maybe everyone feels that way, <laughs> I think, to a certain extent. But it, I was living in this world of you know, digital design and working with a lot of new tools all the time and constantly picking up new skills, whether it was you know, the next Adobe InDesign or figuring out how to use WordPress more effectively or whatever. But... And then living in my dance world, and I felt like they, there was a lot in common for me, a mental model point of view, the way that I was organizing or thinking about my work. And right around this time, like the Apple Watch was coming out and many more high fidelity, like motion capture sensors that are fairly inexpensive were coming out. So you probably saw the Microsoft Connect for the Xbox and they were releasing you know, versions one and two. And the Apple Watch basically has these, has a tilt sensor inside of it and ways of detecting your motion and Hmm. checking accelerations between uh, your arm to be able to tell how fast you're running. So we had these widely available, fairly low-cost sensors that were telling you something about the body. 
And one of my mentors, a guy named Sidney Skybetter, who has taught at Brown and Harvard and did his MFA in undergrad at NYU in choreography, he was sort of picking up on this trend and saying, we have technology that is very literally intersecting with the body in order to describe the body in ways that we haven't necessarily before. I mean, in really high, expensive mocap studios, you're using, you know, I think it's Viacom or um, OptiTrack for movies and stuff. They've been doing that for a long time, but not necessarily in your home to be able to capture, catalog, and track the body's motion. And so Sydney was reaching out to me and saying, you know, I think it's really interesting because choreographers who are curious or want to include some tech-based mocap in their pieces, you know, it's democratizing now. It's becoming really widely available. And at that time, I was really interested in VR, not so much using it, but talking about it and describing the history of virtual reality because it turns out that, like, in the 50s and 60s, you could actually watch movies in something called the Sensorama where you were sitting inside of this chair and it would blow wind in your face and you could smell what it smelled like to be in the dirt and grass. So it was trying to give you like a multi-sensory experience of watching right. a film. And I was really looking at pieces like that and just curious about the whole space. And Sydney said, look, I'm putting together a conference at Brown. It's going to be a really small group of people and we're going to hash out a, an ethics-based discussion about technology and the body. And Do you want to come? I was like, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I went to that, and a woman named Amy LeVeers, who wound up inviting me to be the artist-in-residence at the lab that she runs, which is the Robotics Automation and Dance Lab at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And she said, why don't you come here for a month? You can teach movement class. So I taught choreography, improvisation. I will not call it technique. It was not a technique class. Um, but I... I taught movement class to, you know, eight or 12 full-time engineering students in her lab. I taught that every morning. That's awesome. And then in the app, yeah, it was a pretty trippy experience. I hadn't worked with one group of students like that for such a consistent duration. Uh, I mean, it was four days a week for a month. So I guess along the lines of what someone maybe who's teaching in a more institutionalized space, that's probably like an entry-level class for them. But for mm -hmm. me, it was a really dense period of courses. Um, and I taught movement class to her students, and then in the afternoon, I would make work with the robots in the lab. So figure out how to use them, if I wanted to create dance or theater or installation work with these robots. And by the end of that time period, kind of had a little bit of an outline not an outline, certainly a, a draft of the pieces that I wound up performing and collaborating on with Amy and her students, you know, for the next, I would say, year and a half. Um, I just think that's amazing that, that that place existed. Yeah, Amy herself is a dancer, um, and she studied dance for many years and founded this lab and they had worked with many other movement practitioners, and Amy's also a certified movement analyst, a CMA, the Laban Barton EF program. Um, she collaborated with many different movement artists over the years through different iterations of her lab and had taught these sort of summer workshops to some of her students. But this was the first instance where she had invited an artist in residence to come and be a part of the lab. And we actually wrote about that a fair amount 
you know, before and then right when I got there because it did seem like an unexpected thing. <laughs> um, certainly there are, there are spaces that have a lot of interdisciplinary work between art and technology, whether it's MPAC, RPI, NYU, the MIT Media Lab. Um, but I think this was certainly very unique in that she was part of an engineering program and inviting an artist to be engrossed in the lab for a year. And there were a lot of risks involved and uh, certainly felt intimidated for me personally at first. You know, what can I offer? What expertise do I have? What can I bring that will be beneficial? Um, and it turns out that that a lot of robotics is really similar to dance. At least, I mean, again, one of those things where I can't separate the way that I think about them. Yeah. I mean, robots, you have to plan a path for them to be able to move and to do so effectively and efficiently. That absolutely requires an awareness of movement. You need robots to interact with the space around them. That is certainly something that dancers and choreographers are very aware of. Is what is this body in space doing? What does it look like? How does it... How is it perceived by the other people that are there? Um, and just being able to translate motion across. I mean, I worked with a robot arm this summer in my grad graduate study, and the, we call the end effector sort of the end of the robot. And thinking about if I wanted that end effector to get somewhere, how would I move all of the other joints in the robot in order to create that outcome? Um, and yeah. again, feels sort of like a dance task. Yeah, <laughs> so, totally. Yeah. Well, and also, like, how beneficial, I'm curious, like, how open the engineering students were to the classes and stuff, because I think it's so, um, so beneficial to have those, those things overlapping. I've seen with my, my older brother is an engineer, an aerospace engineer, and he and I, like, grew up doing Shakespeare together, and then at college, like, he went towards engineering, (laughs) like, like my dad and, like, my grandpa, he, like, went down that (laughs) path. And I continued doing theater, but I, I still see it in his career today. He's like the person in his lab who can really communicate ideas and speak in front uh-huh. of crowds and like communicate um, what they're trying to do in a way that people can understand. And so I'm sure having those classes probably opened up their minds to a different way of thinking about their own work. I think, I mean, the students themselves seem to be quite self-selecting, you know, wanting to join a lab that was experimental in that way. Mm -hmm. They had a prior to be quite open to new experiences and new things. And also it was a community, really, that Amy was cultivating of trying to show to her students that you can be open, you can have this totally different form of training, and it will be additive to your engineering background. Yeah. And... I also think because I had gone and done my undergrad at a place like Berkeley, which is super high um, scholastic, <laughs> pursuit of scholastic excellence, I felt like it, I could communicate or speak in a way that would make sense maybe to people whose interests were different than me, but where we could relate um, on other levels. So. But it was a challenge of how do we structure these classes, what is too much, what is too little. Um, And to hear you talk about your brother's experience, I mean, one of the most interesting parts of being in grad school now is that it is a huge component of your work to write and speak about what you've done. (laughs) Those are inherently (laughs) creative tasks, right? I mean, it is an inherently creative thing to sit and formulate 
what was a completely abstract idea into a written, composed, sensible thought, and to pass that on to someone who can see it as knowledge and intake it, I mean, that is a creative, <laughs> what? <laughs> and you that have to learn how to do task. that. That is, that is right. a skill. Right, exactly right. And I think that type of composition, I mean, any type of composition, whether it's dance or screenwriting or research paper writing, I mean, is a form of creation, right? So then, like, what are the rules around, what are the bounds or expectations around that type of creation? Yeah, and I can, all, like, already in our conversation, just picking up on, like, the vocabulary words you use to describe, like, I'm, I can just hear that you articulate your ideas so often, probably, around what you're doing and what you're interested in, and you definitely like found a way to communicate it to others and I'm just like learn I'm just picking up on the things where I'm like oh this is these are words that I don't normally use in my section of the world right now but <laughs> they're coming from, they're coming from your cross sections and your your new environment oh totally and it's a challenge I mean I find coming and reconnecting with a lot of my dance friends and well not even reconnecting but maintaining our constant relationships it's like we are speaking, the language is evolving all the time, right? Like, it doesn't stay fixed. When you talk about movement, it, it, every single class or interaction or piece that you see, it's like a new perspective and advantage that's being layered on top. And so mm -hmm. I feel like the vocabulary in any field shifts constantly. And so you have to make sure that you're staying current with what that vocabulary is. Um, and I mean, the academic community, you have a very long tradition of remarking or make, paying reference to the earlier vocabulary and adding your vocabulary or your work, your research on top of it. Um, and there's a tradition around doing that, whereas maybe in dance, it's a little more fluid. You don't have people sort of constantly referring back to vocabularies, but they exist. They're there. They're part of the technique that you're learning. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. second year of this program um do you feel like it's giving you a framework and the work you get to do within the academic year is exciting and freeing or do you find that you're still like searching for the free time to to do your extra side projects on the side <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question I when I started here I was so underwater and so challenged intellectually that I felt very little space to be creative or to be free, even though I was actually still performing, you know, a piece that I worked on last summer during a residency, a robotics residency that I had at a place called ThoughtWorks Arts. Um, I was still performing that piece all throughout the fall and like even some of the spring and going, flying back to New York on the weekend, you know, to, to do a show or something like that. Um, 
but when I first started at Stanford, I was so overwhelmed intellectually that it was like, where, where, right. <laughs> where, where and when, you know, <laughs> like, I, I am trying to get my homework in, <laughs> like, how will I possibly have space or time or creativity, um, and then I also think, like, the creativity happens a little bit when you're not expecting it, you know, I took another class in the winter and spring around like mechatronics and sensors and actually got a huge amount of inspiration from both of those because I was thinking about how we have these brand new flexible body-based sensors that could be used and they were describing them in many different kind of like medical applications and I was thinking Mm -hmm. well that would be a really cool idea for a dance it's like if you have a sensor which can tell not only someone's displacement but you can map that sensor to voltage for example you turn lights on with your body and then if I'm turning lights on with my body and I don't need to be attached to anything what if I could turn the lights on on the stage with just my body right so there's like trying to take something which exists in one world pulling it out and putting it in another that that really started to happen for me maybe around winter and spring Mm -hmm. so coming into this next year what I'm really excited about is I have a community at Stanford now. I have an advisor who I'm totally nuts about <laughs> and uh, a new lab that I'm joining. And I have a number of people I've met at Stanford where we're becoming this community. And we've just given like a name and a title to a new organization where the critical practice unit, CPU, which is sort of a play on the a computer CPU, like central processing unit. Mm. Um, and the goal is to be able to allow internal and external artists to show artwork and then to have discussions about it, but not to be tied only to theater, to have participants from any community on campus. And I'm really excited about being a part of that and like starting it. It actually is a reference back to a group at Stanford that got founded 20 years ago called ING, um, the Interaction Media Group, and it was a group of students who were creating artwork, showing it to each other, inviting external artists. So I think, like, founding my own artistic community here is something I'm super excited about. Yeah. And then, I mean, Stanford is, uh, it's interestingly situated, right? Like, we're in Palo Alto. <laughs> um, it's, not a, it's not a major artistic hub. So I'm thinking about, you know, what are we in relation to we're in relation yes to silicon valley but also to like san francisco los angeles Mm -hmm. this rich california plate and i mean california has been grappling a lot with climate um it had drought for a very long period of time so like what there's a huge change in the population here you know california is uh one of the first states where we don't have a majority white population in the United States. It's a much more mixed race place. So, you know, I'm thinking about like, what are the histories, politics, environmental influences of being in this place, which are very different than being in a city like New York. And how can I reflect that both in my artwork and in my research? So I'm excited to do more, to feel more present and less, uh, I think my first year I was really mourning the loss of New York, and this year is trying to embrace what other influences can exist. That's so exciting. I'm excited to hear about how that goes. Um, Thank you. 
we don't have to talk about this if you don't want to, but I was wondering, since um, your partner Cameron is also an artist, an actor, and a musician, how you guys have um, negotiated being in a relationship as two artists and supporting each other and now dealing with long distance and all of that. It is an important question because I think it sits at like the center of the compass. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, for me personally. um, I mean, we've been together, we met seven years ago and we've been together for six and three quarters, I'd say, (laughs) just about seven so I associate kind of every aspect of my post-collegiate life with Cameron. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I am incredibly admiring of his gifts and talents as an artist. And I think admiring, not only admiring, but committed to his success, you know, both personally, you know, meditatively from a wellness and mental health point of view, and also from his artistry and feeling like he, he is in his harmony and existing in the, the frequencies that he wants for his artistic work. I mean, I, I'm just completely invested in that and, and certainly feel the same way that he is for me. Mm-hmm. We've collaborated together on projects, you know, whether it's short films or we read each other's work. You know, he's written a number of scripts and he'll send me demos before he records his songs. So we have we have an aspect of our artistic exchange that is very functional, you know, kind of like reading drafts, looking at drafts, providing feedback, you know, being a strategic sounding board about, oh, I want to record or mix with this person. What do you think about that? And what's the timing? How should I work that out? So there's like an aspect of it that I think is quite functional when you're in a relationship where you're both sort of hustling with your artwork. And Mm -hmm. then I think above that, much farther above that, is the fact that when is trying to hold space and room for this infinite creative spirit that he has and allowing that to proliferate in completely intangible ways, you know, whether that's by loving someone or making them laugh or enjoying a great meal, like the fostering of that creative spirit that has nothing to do with the quote unquote functioning of the artwork, I think is happens completely naturally, right? It's the fostering of that creative spirit that makes you fall in love with someone or makes Mm -hmm. you feel that they take you to a higher space and you can't always say how or why but it happens and I think that is something which is the the core of maybe why it always feels like life is new (laughs) together (laughs) why it feels like it all is inexplicable yet completely sensical um and being long distance is extremely difficult, right? There are like there are very tangible burdens that come with that. Like before we're splitting laundry and dishes, now we don't. <laughs> now we're both doing that, right? So again, like taking it back to the functional. Yeah. And then it's also that inexplicable I keep using this higher idea, but like the air and the clouds that are floating above, which is when you come home and you want to light a candle and just sit with someone and feel their air, 
right? So that is the, the yeah. challenge too that exists. And Cameron and I, you know, what's so fascinating about these careers is like we will have these periods of absolute, it's like the rocket has taken off and nothing is stopping the progress, right? I think that's very much how I felt my last year in New York from my artistic career point of view. It was like I was showing at places I'd always wanted to be showing and speaking with people I'd always wanted to meet and it was like every hmm. every section of the track kept being laid out and the train kept moving forward, right? And so you'll have these moments where that happens or these periods, maybe they last your whole life, maybe they don't. And I've seen that happen for Cameron too, where he's, it's every single audition, every room he's walking into, every person he meets, it's like there is no boundary to his acceleration. And then other times it changes and you're like, why? Right, and then you're like, <laughs> what have I ever done? When can I get a yes again? Or you ask yourself, like, am I different? You know, have I changed? Right. Is this about me? When really, and maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know the answer. And I wonder for you, I mean, you've spoken with so many people now who have probably described these periods of utter expansion and the <laughs> total questioning of, like, who am I? I mean, and how do how do people handle it? Or what? Do they, do they just embrace that crazy up-down or... I think to a certain extent, I think there is something about realizing like, oh, I've done this, this has happened to me before, and it always ends. You know, I always come out of it. And just remembering that the next time it happens. But then it's also, it's that balance between, yes, thinking positively and taking care of yourself and, oh, it's going to change. And then also acknowledging how messed up the industry is and that there aren't any promises and that, you know, like there's that balance between being realistic and being positive. And so it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting walk. (laughs) You know what I mean? Totally. Yeah. And, and I think it's hard to compartmentalize that and to say like, okay, this is just about, my work because I mean there's that whole notion that your life is your art right and if your art isn't going in the direction that you want does that mean that your whole life isn't it's so personal when you're making your art yeah from your from your soul and your body and your your brain and your flesh you know Mm -hmm. I don't know I guess uh, yeah but that's something that you know comes when you try to when we decide to do this as a career and we're trying to make money from it so that's what it's Really, I, through all these interviews, I'm trying to figure out, but I don't think I've come to an answer yet. <laughs> it's like when we when we decide we want to make a living from our artwork is when it matters to us, uh, you know, whether whether other people quote unquote accept it or give us the the financial reward that we want in exchange for it, or whether we're you know making it solely for its own its own worth, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we have. A good friend of ours is a musician down in L.A. Um, she's a singer-songwriter, and we've talked a lot about this because I have these two very close friends who are musicians in Los Angeles, and one is very much trying to write the next Katy Perry hit, <laughs> and his whole practice is around tapping into that specific 
type of success. And then another good, very close friend of mine who's a singer-songwriter, and she's like, I don't care if I make a dollar from my music. You know, I have no desire to be a business person with my music, but I have to make music because it's how I live and how I want to wake up every day and how I want to spend my time. So I think... And I'm sure they both grapple with, like, is this real music, quote-unquote, if no one's paying me for it, or right. if no one is telling me that it's new and good, <laughs> am, I, right. am I being successful? And and I think one, one of the reasons I decided, I mean, I decided to go to grad school for a number of reasons. One was I felt like I wanted a new set of tools. I wanted a new set of skills so that I could make different kinds of work. Mm-hmm. I mean, something that is so real is to move from being in a sort of like economically disempowered community. Truly, that's what it is, like the dance community. If you if you aren't honest a little bit about that, I mean, it's you're not speaking the truth. And then moving into an engineering community where there's sort of this expectation that like my skills are valued and people care about them and they are adding something to the world. I mean, it's right. a completely different mindset and one that I can't even embrace <laughs> because I've had so many years of like trying to rationalize that the work that I do is right. important or will provide some positive impact on the world. So it's a completely weird, weird mental space to be in. I mean, and that's something that's really exciting. It, if since you've found a way to intersect those two things, I'm so curious to see like what you decide to do after you have your degree. Where hopefully like you'll be able to have that expectation and your creative path, you know? Well I think one interesting thing now and this is maybe a little of what Sydney was describing to me very early on and that I'm picking up on even more and more is like because we are now having a lot of body based sensory experiences or ways of interacting with the world you know for example in five or six years we might not have remote controls right to use our television you could just stand in front of a tv and swipe in between different apps on your iphone in free space you know moving your hand back and forth you might not even need to be able to click buttons to do it Uh, we already have alexa that and siri that you can speak to and you don't have to touch any type of interface in order to do that so if in, in some years down the line future, you have all of these things that you can control just using your body, not using mm-hmm. keyboards or remote controls or whatever, uh, having gestures and movements that are legible to those things, that's a choreographic problem. Yeah. So a lot of dancers have this strange expertise over X number of years about being able to describe and create embodied experience. So will that become the most highly coveted technical skill? Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Um, And I think it just makes for an interesting set of questions about what is a quote-unquote skill and what communities care about that. Yeah, totally. We've been talking for a while. And there's a, there's a couple short questions at the end that I always ask, but is there anything that we have not touched on that you really wanted to talk about? I'm, I mean, I'm curious about place, like having mm-hmm. now spoken with, I mean, I know you know Ray Walter Hudson, and one of my close mentors, Claire Cook, and like people who have kind of 
taken themselves out of the New York uh-huh. space or the LA space and how they grapple or handle that <laughs> I think is is a challenge or like something I think a lot about of like yeah geography can really affect that yeah but I'm, 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 like, I'm glad that you're attempting to engage with where you are and not necessarily make it something else but figure out the strengths that it has I think that's great yeah, I'm, and I wonder about, like, what is the relevance of this work if it happens in a, in a place that isn't a major artistic hub, right? Um, I think about that a lot. And mm-hmm. I think another thing that I feel challenged by or curious about is, like, now that my day-to-day is to go to class, run experiments, synthesize results, publish papers, get ready for talks, you know, work with other researchers, find collaborators, that sort of thing. Like, what is the functional day-to-day doing to change the work that gets made? You know, does it mean that I have more time or less time to devote to my artwork? Is it all my, can I just call it all my artwork, right? Can I say that everything I've ever made, which has some stamp, on it that wasn't made before (laughs) that I'm a part of um do I get to call that my artwork and and I think also in 2019 where we live in the slash universe you know I'm a DJ slash uber driver slash I mean these are not my slashes but I'm imagining they belong to someone um what is the threshold for getting to be one or the other and uh I don't, I think about that all the time because some of those titles actually have expertise associated with them, right? To call yourself a dancer took me a really long time to be able to say that I was that to people because I really associated the word with like a certain measure of training and eliteness and scholarship and professionalism and being paid to do your work. But does everyone get to call themselves a dancer who puts up a YouTube video, right? So, like, that's... And then does it not matter because you're fighting over something that's so not precious anyway? Right. (laughs) (laughs) And and people call me an engineer now, and I'm like, I'm not an engineer. I mean, I'm here in an engineering program. I'm not a very... I'm not a very good engineer. I am (laughs) learning to be better at something that I am not currently good at. And I don't think I would ever call myself that to people Hmm. right so i and because we're in this slash world where you need to be able to survive like at what point do you get to own one title over the other is a confusing (laughs) heart-wrenching question for me no that is interesting i struggle with that right now especially because i'm in because of my choices to like for us to have a family i'm in kind of a dormant period in my acting work so I'm not auditioning I'm taking a very conscious break to have this day job so that we could have the maternity leave so we could have the baby and like and I don't I don't necessarily identify as an artist while I'm at my day job if I'm not currently if I'm not currently acting like what does that mean and I, I know in my it's one of those things where you have to tell yourself you know like that doesn't take away from who I am or what I am or the years I've devoted to training and making and <laughs> creating, you know, but in, right. in this world where like 
people are constantly putting out content and you have to be like visible and in the news and what are you working on and what are you working on it's like it's it it would be easy i can see myself if i let myself go there i could easily be like am i an actor am i an artist mm-hmm. if i'm not exactly all right so the last two questions that i always ask are if you do find yourself going to that dark place or that uninspired place are there any tangible things that you go back to again and again I know obviously we talked about just moving but any books that you reread music you listen to places you go that you know can kind of take you out of it take a shower (laughs) yes take a shower (laughs) that's mine too water of any kind water of any kind um take a shower I mean there's certain records that I could listen to in any dark place and they would be transformative I think like I mean it's kind of a cliche one but kind of blew by Miles Davis any day of the week Mm -hmm. going to ice cream I think what's really important is to have people in your life who remind you who you are yes and I have an incredibly fantastic group of humans like that who I could call on at any point who would give you the pep talk that you need. I think in terms of dark side prevention, I mean, I have a mantra that I say every morning that I wrote on New Year's Day and I write a new one every year and I say it out loud every morning to myself. Mm -hmm. And that's the energy that I try to open the day with. I also, Twyla has a beautiful one about light light a candle and then blow it out and sort of just feel the vibration in the room be different. And I think another tried and true one is we tend to be at this very horizontal plane all the time, whether we're walking or standing or cell phoning. Physically, we're at this horizontal plane. And if you can't shake that dark place, but you go outside and look up and look down, (laughs) I think it will give you a literal new (laughs) point of view. Those are all great. Um, And then the final question is, have you seen anything lately of any art form that you want to recommend? Ooh, good question. Well, I'm biased, but Cameron is going to put out a new record that doesn't sound like anything you've ever heard or experienced. So when that becomes a thing, I will yell it from the hills <laughs> okay. far and wide we'll stay tuned the, the title and where it is okay um in terms of other great things i've seen lately which i want to recommend i we went to a couple shows and we were in new york but one was this new show called wives at playwrights horizons which i think sort of like blew up the whole idea of a play Oh. She had these four different eras, and then at the end, they kind of transcend space-time, and all the characters weave together, and I would highly recommend that to anyone who's in New York City. Great. And I think, gosh, one more thing I really want to recommend. I mean, we all have plenty of content we could watch these days, but Years and Years on HBO was oh, a BBC that. show. Okay. Mm-hmm was a BBC produced, and it starts in 2020, but the bulk of it takes place in 2025, and it's about three generations of a modern British family, 
and it's so close to our era that it feels a little creepy, <laughs> but it's just far enough where you start to blur truth versus fiction. Hmm. And I recently sat down with um, a researcher at Apple. His name is G. Rod Laput. We met in Pittsburgh, and he was saying, you know, my work, I'm interested in creating stuff that sits in this three to seven year time horizon. I don't want to make something that will exist in a year, and I don't want to make something for 200 years from now. I want to make something in this weird three to seven year interval. Hmm. And he's a product designer and researcher. Uh, and I sort of think that's what years and years did. And I also think that's an interesting void to be a part of, right? Is it's not like what's going to happen in 12 months from now, but like how can I make an impact in a certain horizon that is real, but not so far off that it loses focus. And so I'm, I want to recommend that three to seven year time period. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. That's a For, really interesting way to think of what you're what you're making or what you're trying to do. Right. So I want to just recommend that as a period in time. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. Well, Katie, thank you so so much. This was delightful. I'm so glad we had the, the chance to talk. I really appreciate you reaching out. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of the Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash the Compass Podcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. You'll get access to bonus content and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brandon Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere 
and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.